Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning and welcome to Oak City Church. We are thankful that you've chosen to join us this morning. We are in the second week of a series in the book of Nehemiah. This series we titled Nehemiah, Respond, Renew, and Rebuild. And Nehemiah is really like the biblical guide to crisis response. Um, He finds himself in the midst of a crisis, and I didn't really plan this that well. I just, for other reasons, thought Nehemiah, and then I got into it, thought, oh, this is great. So let me start with this question. When you, when you get a problem, you know, a problem comes up for you, what's the first thing that you do? What is the first thing that you do? If you're with some folks right now, you could take this opportunity to say, here's the first thing that I would do. And I know it kind of depends on what the problem is, but I think the answer for most of us now, it's a recent answer, is Google it. We Google it. The internet is like the collection of everybody's information and knowledge over thousands of years. And so we think Google's got it. And so we can figure out how to solve our problem by uh, going there. And you can like fix a lot of stuff. I, um, I like to fix stuff around the house or with cars. I've seen thousands of dollars because guys like putting their car fixes on YouTube. And I like going on there and searching what's wrong with my car and seeing if I can save money and fix it. Uh, myself. I know during, for me, and I know for you too, because we're all seeing the same thing during the this COVID deal, um, I have seen so many more of, and it's on my, then the Apple news feed, I'll kind of scroll through and it's got different things on it. And, and they'll, every, every, every day, really, there's something that's like, here are 17 things that you can get on amazon.com that are less than $20 that you are going to think, how did I ever live without this? Because they're going to solve a problem for you. Okay, so that's what we do most of the time. Nehemiah is facing a massive problem, a massive problem. And the way that he responds to his massive problem is really instructive uh, for us and I think should be convicting for us. So here is, this is where we ended off last week and I'm going to pick up there. Um, It says, as soon as I heard these words, and the words he heard were from his brother Hanani, who had come from Jerusalem and... um, and Nehemiah is a thousand miles away in Babylon. He says, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the Lord, the God of heaven. And so I talked last week and the message was about, you gotta see the problem. You really can't stick in your head, in the, your head in the sand. You gotta see it. You gotta choose to engage the problem and, and really try and understand what's going on and why, even if it's not your problem, why it affects the people around you the way that it affects the people around you. And then and what's going to happen there is the urgency becomes from empathy. You know, you get urgent about the problem because you see or you feel for yourself how bad of a problem it is and you got to figure out what to do with it. And especially if it's someone else's problem, you really have to trust the Lord for how you're going to engage it because it could mean all sorts of things to you to really engage it effectively and and you don't know what it is. And that's what Nehemiah is doing here. He's trusting the Lord. So he continues fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, 
Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. And so here is, this is my first point for today. Nehemiah's confidence was not in his own competence, but in the Lord's. Nehemiah's confidence was not in his own competence, but in the Lord's. Just a quick side note, if you've been around Oak City for, for a while, I am not, I, I don't usually do bullet points. I've been doing them more. So early when we were a church, people would say that intentionally. They'd be like, you're not you know, a bullet point preacher. And most of the time they were sent, like that's said as a, as a good thing. I had someone once say, your, your messages are a little bit like an episode of The Simpsons, which I never watched The Simpsons a whole lot, but they said, they said, you're never quite sure where it's going, but it always gets there in the end. And and that again was, was a good thing. People have said that I have a, a pretty conversational preaching style, which they um, appreciate. Um, and then I can take a passage that they've heard preached before and take it to maybe a little bit deeper level, you know, without making it too hard to understand. And I, I like all that stuff, but people have also said you're kind of hard to follow. And if you get lost for a few minutes, like just forget about it because you're not going to figure out where where I am. And so I think COVID has made me want to just have three points and let you know that they're coming and where they are. So if you get lost, you can pick back up. And I, at first I thought I'm doing that for your sanity because it's over a screen. And now I think it's for mine. So there you go. There's my first point. Nehemiah's confidence was not in his own confidence, but in the Lord's. Even though Nehemiah is going to prove to be an exceedingly competent, amazingly competent person, his confidence was not in his own ability to solve the problem. And his first step would not have been to Google. It wouldn't have been uh, to the internet. Now, in fairness, it is a big problem. Uh, you know, this isn't an easy one to figure out. He is, as I said, a thousand miles away from the problem. The walls of Jerusalem are down. The gates have been destroyed by fire. The people are experiencing derision and shame because of it. They've lost their sense of safety. They've lost their sense of identity. This is uh, his people. It's a geopolitical problem. And so it's not an easy one to solve. And so if you think about um, what's next on your list, if the, if the problem is too big for Google, what's on, next on your list of like, what do I do about a problem? If you're honest with yourself, the next thing, or maybe the first thing that some of us do is we worry about it. We think I'll put this on my list to worry about and we wake up at four o'clock in the morning and when like, that's what comes to our mind. Or we complain to somebody about it, or we um, blame someone for it on Facebook, or uh, we pray about it. Now, to be honest, pray about it, is just be honest, where is that on your list? Because I just, I know for most of us, it's fairly low on our list. For some of you, it's really high, you know, but for a lot of us, it's almost a last resort thing. And that is, a, that's a big problem for us, you know? I think part of your growing in the relationship with the Lord is realizing you're not as smart as you think you are. And you don't have to wait until you realize the problem is too big for Google or for you or for whatever your experience is to pray about it. The problem's always too big for you. And so you should start by bringing the problem to the Lord and seeing what happens with it. And Nehemiah's prayer here is a little bit like the Lord's prayer. It's a little bit like the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. So Nehemiah says, O Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ears be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, for your servants. So God, you are a great God. You are powerful. You are faithful. You are a God who pays attention to our needs and our situation and to our prayers. And that is a bit like Jesus saying, our Father who is in heaven, let your name be holy. 
Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when, when I'm stressed out about a big problem and I pray those words from the Lord's Prayer, there is a little bit of me that's like, okay, I got it. You're great. You listen. Can you fix my problem? Like, I don't want to wait for the, like the, the preliminaries to get to it, but that might be the most important part of the prayer. It's a little bit like the prologue to a book or the beginning of a, a story, a movie, a book, whatever it is, where they're just trying to set the scene and get you engaged in the characters before they get into the storyline. You just want to get right to the storyline. I am uh, part of my COVID whatever is uh, now I'm, I'm reading Moby Dick by Herman Melville. And I thought I should read like a classic, you know, I should read these classic books. I'm, and I'm, I'm on a Kindle. And so you can see what percentage of the book you're through. I was through 40% of the book before they ever met a whale. I'm like, are you kidding me? And he uses way too many words. I know some of you are laughing right now, but he does. He goes through like a catalog of all the whales in the ocean, none of which you care about because Moby Dick is a sperm whale. That's the only whale that you're after. You know what I mean? So don't go through all this stuff. And that's how this can feel like. Uh, God, I know you're great, right? Okay, fix the problem. Let's get to the problem. Let's get down to business. But a lot of prayer is just that. And it is stop and sit and remember that he is God and you are not. Because we will forget that in a hot minute, right? In a skinny heartbeat, we will forget who is God and who is not. And we think it's us and the answers are on Google and that will make us omnipotent and we can fix the problem. And so, so much of what's going on here is us remembering who we are and who he is. And maybe, I don't know, maybe it's easier now because we have more time, but maybe it's harder now because there's just anxiety and stress. I read, or I was listening to someone this week talk about um, how Warren Buffett, like he's got an hour and a half maybe every day in his schedule just to look out the window. Um, and Tony Blair does something every every week. He had 40 minutes where he just like walked around the lake or something like that. But just these times, you ever stare at the ocean? Hopefully you've had a chance to get away and you stare at the ocean or you stare at some mountains and it puts things in perspective. And this prayer, this type of prayer is supposed to do that for us. And sometimes you need a really big problem to get that point across. You need a really big problem to get that point across. Well, we got some really big problems. And so now's a great time for us to learn this lesson. And it, and, and it happens, I mean, it's not just Nehemiah, it's all through, it's not just the Lord's, it's all over the place. So this is um, from 2 Corinthians 1. Um, we don't want you to be or for unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. This is Paul talking about his missionary journeys. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We felt we had received the sentence of death, like big problem. We can't fix this one. Uh, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And it's like you have to get to that point where you remind yourself, okay, God raised Jesus from the dead. He can fix my problem. But it takes a while to get there, to sit in whatever you're going through. He will deliver us, or he delivered us from such a deadly peril. He will deliver us on him. We have set our hope that he will deliver us again. From the Old Testament, uh, not from 2 Corinthians to 2 Chronicles. So this is a passage right after Solomon builds the temple. And they, so the tabernacle becomes the temple and, and the Lord is gonna inhabit the temple. And it says after all that's done, it's a great set of passages there. But after it's done, the Lord appeared to Solomon 
in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, crisis, or command uh, the locusts to devour the land, crisis, or send pestilence among my people, crisis, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, humble themselves, I'm not God, but you are, and pray, and they'll seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears will be attentive to the prayer that is made in that place. And obviously there's some specific context for Israel and for the Old Testament, but this is repeated. God is a God who hears, he is attentive and hears, his eyes are open, his ears are open. A few chapters later, King Asa is one of the kings. He starts really well, a bunch of reforms, gets people worshiping the Lord, and then he ends, he kind of falls off the cliff and ends badly. And in the midst of that, God says to him, says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. God is looking for somebody to give support to who will depend on him fully, fully. And that's, that's what we should do every day. That's what we should do in the midst of any problem, uh, but particularly in the time of a crisis. This one's a little bit longer, so I'm just gonna read a bit of it and pretty fast. But this is Jehoshaphat, who is the son of Asa. And so at one point in Jehoshaphat's um, reign, it says, after this, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and with them, some of the Munites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they're in a town I can't pronounce. And Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, all the people came to seek the Lord. They all fasted and prayed before the Lord and said, help us, Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? We're your friend. You say, said that in the New Testament. Jesus is our friend. And they have lived in it and built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house, before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, whom we avoided and didn't destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession. Uh, o our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We are powerless, God. We don't know what to do, but you know what to do. Our eyes are on you. This is so, this week has been so convicting me for, to me and, and for weeks leading up knowing that this is coming, this passage is so challenge, challenging to me because it, prayer honestly isn't the first place I go. Uh, I've said this a bunch of times. If I were to start another church all over again, start this church all over again, the first thing that I would do is make sure we were set up to pray more strategically as a church. 
There's a church that I follow, a podcast I put out there a few weeks ago from Bridgetown Church, and that church, since COVID has started, they fast and pray every week that the Lord would deliver not just their church and not just their state or the nation, but deliver his, like mankind from COVID. That's how they depend on the Lord. Uh, do you pray, Do you pr have you prayed that God would give us a, a fix for COVID, that he would deliver us. And, and that doesn't mean that we don't, we don't use technology and we don't use knowledge and we don't Google stuff. Like it doesn't mean that, but do we look to him first, recognizing that ultimately all of that stuff comes from him. And the fact that we don't is a, it's just a huge problem. Frankly, it's like a blemish on our character of followers of Christ if that's not something we've done. Do we pray that God would give us a path forward through a racial tension and, and injustice and all the things that we're experiencing? And, and we had a prayer night with Chosen Generation a few weeks ago. And I, I know people are busy and got stuff going on, but there were not enough of us on that prayer call. Like that should have been more of a priority for us as a church. The fact, honestly, that we're in a position where we have this relationship with this group of people that we can have a prayer night, and it's not awkward at all. It just makes perfect sense. But there weren't more of us on is hard. That's disappointing. And it points to this is our problem. This is a problem for us, that we don't depend on him the way that we ought to. Do we pray that God would bring revival to our city, that there would be a move of God's spirit that could only be explained by the presence of God's spirit? In our, in our church, in our family, in our neighborhoods, in our city. That happens in the Old Testament, it happens in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, you see prayer and then you see revival. Historically, you look through revivals and they are preceded by times of prayer where it seemed like God wasn't doing anything and then bam, God does something. There's a quote I came upon this week um, from a, a guy, but like a a, um, a really good Christian who's long gone. He's been dead for a while. But I have a theory and believe it to be true that there's not a church, chapel, or mission on earth where you cannot have a revival provided there is a nucleus of faithful people who will hold on until God comes. Who will hold on until God comes. Nehemiah knew his competence was not enough to get the job done. Are we humble enough? And do we have enough faith, not just to say the same thing, but to pray like it? Um, another hero of the faith, a guy named Andrew Murray, has a book on prayer, and, and he starts with prayerlessness and says the biggest sin of the church and its pastors is prayerlessness. There's a, a pastor that I follow um, in New York, not named Tim Keller, a guy named John Tyson, who I put, he was in the weekly, um, there's an interview with him, and he, this guy is so passionate about prayer, and it's growing. He took his family on vacation to places where great revivals have taken place. He's intense about this stuff, and he's in New York, so we went to Rochester, where Finney's revival took place, in Connecticut, where John Edwards preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, and people literally fainted because God's spirit was moving and he came back to his church utterly convicted that they don't pray enough and his church had already set up that they pray four hours every day to have people praying for revival in their church and in their city and he says we are the best educated group of pastors in the west in europe in the united states we're the best educated group of pastors probably the best collective set of preachers the world has ever known and we are overseeing the greatest decline of the church in history and he said, it's because we don't pray. Our preaching matters, but it's not combined with the type of prayer that's needed for, for God to do the thing that God wants to do.
Do you pray about your marriage? Do you pray about your work? Do you pray about your parenting? Do you pray about your money? Do you pray about your schoolwork? Students, we're so capable. We have access to so much information and technology and experience, and we can think that means we have power, but it, but it doesn't. We don't have power. This is so hard for us. Church, we are not good at this, and we need to be better. Um, as elders right now, we're taking a step back in the midst of this and just asking God, hey, where do you want us to go for the next few years? And so how can we cast that vision and strategize for God? What, Where is it? Where do you want us to focus on over the next few years? And so we've been praying and fasting that God would give us direction, and we're asking you to join us in that, just praying that God would do something would do something more than what's been going on over the last few years because we're not satisfied with the fruit that we've been seeing as a church. Would you pray with us? Would you fast with us for that? Nehemiah's confidence was not in his own confidence, but in the Lord's. Where is yours? Where is yours? Okay, I have three points. That was by far the longest one. I promise you it was the longest one. And I could almost cut the, 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 the last two, I, So, but, I, but I'm not going to. Okay, so here's the second one. Nehemiah did not have a sense of, because the prayer is so great, I could probably preach three sermons on it, but I won't. Nehemiah did not have a sense of entitlement, but he did have a sense of expectation. He didn't have a sense of entitlement. God didn't owe him anything, but he did have a sense of expectation that God was going to do something. So he says, he goes on and he says, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. And so his prayer starts with, God, you are great, but we are not. You don't owe us anything. We are depending not on our works, what we deserve, but your mercy. And so he prays that God would forgive that not just his sins, but the sins of his, his father's house. I said this last week, Nehemiah has been, his family has been gone from Jerusalem. He's in exile in Babylon. They've been gone for 150 generations. He doesn't even know the names of the people that committed the sins. And in the story of Israel, it was the sins of his forefathers and all the people that are in exile that, that drove to God, led God to move them into exile to discipline them as Israel. And so he doesn't even know their names, but he's praying that God would forgive the sins of his forefathers and saying, "You, we're getting what we deserve here. This hard for us in our culture. It's I mean, that type of humility before God is increasingly difficult in our culture. You know, um, when, when something happens bad to somebody, a lot of the times this is online, but sometimes it's in person. You're, you don't know what to do. You're like, my, our thoughts and prayers are with you. But now there's like a backlash against that. So I don't need your prayers because God let this thing happen in the first place. And so blah, blah, blah. And, and there is this general thing of God owes us not recognizing how much of the mess we've created in the first place. And so this is a counter-cultural thing for us right now with, with where we live and where we sit and how our culture is moving. We think we deserve better than we're getting. And that's, it's easy to get bitter when you think that you deserve better. I have alliterated more this morning than at any point in the history of my preaching. So the big picture of the gospel really fixes this. It does when you have a gospel mindset and a gospel worldview, it fixes this because the gospel says that God is good. You know, all those things that Nehemiah says that Jesus coaches us to say that they said in Chronicles, all those things are true. The Psalms say that God sits on a throne of righteousness and justice. Exodus says that he is a God that is slow to anger and he is full of compassion and he is merciful. Peter says he does not want any to perish, but all to come to faith and to, to be with him for eternity. But it also says that God will not let the guilty go unpunished. And that's all of us. 
because he has a kingdom in mind and his kingdom doesn't work with our sin. Like that's a problem and it's got to be taken care of for us. And so if people want to rebel against God and seek their own kingdom, he's going to let them and he's going to let them forever. And that's going to be hell in itself, you know? And, and so that's where we start in that relationship. But he so longs for us to show us his mercy that he sent Jesus to show us exactly what he's like, just what type of merciful God this is and, and to provide forgiveness for our sins by going to the cross to pay the consequence and setting up a system for thousands of years where they could see, you know, the, there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. And that led to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. And then Jesus rises from the dead so that God could show us his power and that he has the power over sin and death and give us the hope that we could be with him forever as the people that he created us to be in the first place. Nehemiah gets all this. He gets all this. So he comes before God without a sense of entitlement, but with a sense of expectation, uh, with a sense of expectation. And so in the same breath, he expresses his expectation that God will move. He says, remember the word you commanded your servant Moses. So he's leaning into the Old Testament here. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter among the rebels. But if you return to me and keep my commandments to do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, Babylon, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. God tells them, here's what's going to happen. You are going to mess this thing up when I take you to the promised land and you're going to be scattered. But if my people return to me, I will return them to the land. And that's exactly what happens. And this is what Nehemiah is doing. He's claiming he has a sense of expectation that God is going to move because God has said he is going to move. Do we, do we have that sense of expectation? Are we willing to like lean into God and to hold on until he shows up and trust in the promises that he's given us through his word. This is part of the reason you need to be reading your Bible is just to be reminded of these things. There's so much stuff in this sermon that I've been reminded of this week, the Chronicle stuff I'm reading this week, and it fits right in, and it just catches me. This morning, I read in Luke, the woman who uh, Jesus compares prayer to a, a, an elderly widow going to an unjust judge, and he said that the judge gave her what he wanted, not what she wanted, not because he was a good judge, but because uh, she just wouldn't leave him alone. She kept bugging him. And, and God is the judge. Like, it's just this reminder, keep praying, keep praying, keep praying, because he's going to shape you with that prayer. He wants you to continue to pray about these things, even if you are wondering where he is in the moment. Keep praying. We need to be holding on to the things that he's promised, that he's never going to leave us and he's never going to forsake us. You know, that we should be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, we should present our requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's a promise that we need to be claiming. We need to be casting our cares on him because he cares for us, because he cares for us. We need to be trusting him. I thought about Malachi, where he talks about the tithe and says, uh, trust me in this, test me in this, and see if I won't pour out blessing until every need is met. And so he asks us to do this all the time. Are we taking it in his word, not coming to him with expectation, or, or sorry, not coming to him with entitlement, but coming to him with a sense of expectation. And then last thing about this passage, um, Nehemiah was more concerned with God's kingdom than his own. And so this last little bit, listen for this. There, are, there aren't me's in this passage. There are you's. This is not a me prayer. And a lot of our prayers are me prayers. It is a you prayer. And so he ends this prayer by saying, they are your servants, they are your people 
whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man who is going to turn out to be Artaxerxes. You, God, it is not about me. It is about you. It's about what you're doing. It's about claiming your promises. It's about trusting in your forgiveness because you are the great and awesome God who's created all things and has the plan. Is our heart, are our heart's desires you desires or are they me desires? You know, and that's part of prayer is changing those things. And part of life and walking with the Lord is realizing that we don't know what's best for us. Part of Jesus saying, Hey, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to lose your life in order to save your life. And, and you got to really think about that because losing your life does not feel good when you're losing your life, does it? It feels like you've lost, uh, not like you've won. But he says that's the path to saving your life. And it's this type of prayer. It's this type of prayer, responding by coming to God first in the midst of a crisis, no matter how big it is, by declaring who he is and remembering who we are, by not expecting things from God except the things that he's promised in his mercy towards us, and by seeking his kingdom, seeking his kingdom and being willing to persist in all of that. Now, this, this little passage ends. It says, I was cupbearer to the king. And so it's a setup for what's about to happen next. He's going to go to King Artaxerxes and make his request. And he's got a plan. God's given him a plan. And so he's going to present it to the king and we're going to see what's happening. It's, I mean, it's an exciting book. What do we do? Then this is, we pray. We pray. Uh, the sin that we might need to confess the most this morning is prayerlessness. And so if that's the case for you to the extent that it is, please don't go back to what your normal day is today without spending some time praying to him about your prayerlessness and asking him for help. Uh, prayer puts things in perspective. It puts you in perspective. You are not God. You are guilty, but you are forgiven and you're rightfully at his mercy. It puts him in perspective. He is holy and he's good and he's in control and he's merciful and puts your situation in perspective. Bad things have happened before and bad things are going to happen again. And God's going to be at work in the midst of the bad things. And God hears and answers our prayers. He hears and answers our prayers. I was, um, I thought this week about um, a quote from Abraham Lincoln, of all people, where he said, if I had six hours to complete it, to chop down a tree, I'd spend the first, uh, the first four hours uh, sharpening the ax. If I had six hours to chop down a tree, I'd spend the first four sharpening the ax. And prayer in some ways is that for us, you know, is spending time with the Lord, settling into the Lord, listening to the Lord, asking the Lord for help. But so often we just chop against the tree with a dull blade and get nowhere and get nowhere. One last thought on this passage um, before, before I cut out today. Uh, Nehemiah, I said at the beginning, he didn't trust in his own competence, and he turns out to be a really competent guy. And we always preach this as like a leadership book, and Nehemiah is so competent, we should learn from Nehemiah. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe Nehemiah wasn't that competent of a guy. I also said last week, he's a cupbearer. Like that's his experience in life is drinking wine so that the king doesn't die. He's a little bit expendable. I mean, cupbearer is a, it's a really high position in these ancient kingdoms. And to have, to hang out with the king, you have to have a certain presence about you. And, and we're going to see that in his relationship with the king. But who knows if he can do all this stuff. And maybe he wasn't competent at all at anything but trusting in the Lord. And God just chose to bless him. 
Maybe we've been working way too hard on becoming competent things and way too little on trusting God with the right things. Father, I pray you would convict us um, where, where we need to be convicted. I thank you for the ways that I have been convicted these past few weeks, even though uh, that has been no fun. Lord, forgive me for my prayerlessness. Change my heart. Change my habits. Change my life through that. Change the lives of the people around me because I become a different person because I pray more like Nehemiah and like you have throughout your word taught us to trust in you. Father, we love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.